thought or focused on one verse from Psalm 65, which says, How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. And we looked at three areas, three distinct um, types of almost rights that we have to go through to get into real intimacy with God. You know, we, we, we start off where there's a lot of people outside and then we, we get a bit farther inside into, you know, we start off in the courts, we get to the house and eventually we end up in the temple um, if we pursue that. Uh, we didn't think about Psalm 27, 14, but we did think about 25, verse 14, which says that the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. With them he makes his covenant known. And we, we explored that just a little bit and, and thought about uh, around one or two of those things. But tonight we're going uh, to think about Moses a little bit. Uh, we're going to focus on him and, uh, because there are great parallels. And, you know, if we want to learn about intimacy with God, then let's, let's learn from those who were intimate with him. Let's learn from those who, who really cracked it, who, who, who were there. Uh, and Moses was, was one such. But before we do that, I think to get truly intimate with him, we have to focus on him. We have to start to gaze and look upon his comeliness. We, we have to start to, to kind of step back from our preconceived idea and notion of who God is and let him reveal to us the truth and reality of who he really is. And if you want to get to know him a little bit, then start to study his names. Just go through his names, the, all the names of the Father, of God, the, the whole Godhead, the, the different names of Jesus, because they all describe a different attribute, a different nature of his character, because he is awesome in everything that he does, isn't he? We could never, ever fully grasp or fathom how wide his love is. His, his love stretches from one arm and goes all the way around the world to the other arm that is outstretched to you, for you. And that just... That's just a, a small drop in the ocean of his love. His love will, will never fully be able to be comprehended by the likes of us. He's good, isn't he? He is good all the time. Because all the time God is good. His mercies are abounding. His grace is never ending. His, his power is just awesome in in its brilliance, you know, how many of you like to watch a, an incredible thunderstorm or, or go to the sea when there's a, a, a mighty wind blowing and the waves are crashing? It's just incredible to see how many of us love to go out in spring and, and see the buds coming and the birds singing and the scent of different things. You know, I've, I've lived in this country a long time, but it's only last spring I noticed the scent of the gorse. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. God is magnificent. He is incredible. He is gracious. He is the God of the outstretched hand. He is a generous God. He is a God who, who is extravagant in his generosity. He, he can't give just a little bit. He has to press it down, shake it together and put more in so much that it's running over. That's how generous he is. He is incredibly good in everything that he does. But I want to challenge your thinking on one thing. Because I had to overcome this hurdle to get me into a greater place of intimacy with him. And that is this. God is not fair. God is not 
fair. Oops. <laughs> did I really say that? Yeah, I did. Because I thought all my life, God is fair. God is good. God is just. Yeah, God is good. God is just. But I couldn't quite get my head around the fairness bit because bad things happen to good people. And you think, God, why did that happen to that person when they were living the life that they did? So if I'm going to say something as rash and as bold as that, I really ought to have some scripture to back it up, wouldn't you say? And then I'll quantify it. Why I, I now embrace the fact that God isn't fair. I, I, I rejoice in that now because I now have a greater understanding of it. But if you, if you look in, we're not going to focus on this. We're just going to touch on this because I actually think that thinking that God is fair and then having bad things happen becomes a real barrier to people. They think, yeah, but God is a God of love, but this has happened. I don't get it. So, so this is unfair. It's, it's not right. And it's a point of stumbling to some people. It says in Matthew 20, there's a parable for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his field. And he went out about the third hour, so once at nine, now at 12, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go out into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again he went out in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go and work in the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. You did not agree with me. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give you, uh, give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, I struggled with this for a long time. But then I suddenly realized, when God calls us to intimacy, he calls us to great fruitfulness. And when he's calling us to great fruitfulness, he's going to send us into areas and places of great hardship and trial. Look at John. Among men born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But what happened to John? He ended up in prison alone. And on the whim of a woman, lost his head. Yet he was the greatest man that ever lived. Those were Jesus' words. Was that fair? No, but it was right in the plan and purposes of God. His death achieved something. It wasn't a wasted life. It wasn't a wasted death. We still talk about it and rejoice in God's goodness over that man. And so when you start to think about it, I realize that his extravagant goodness means that he's not restricted to bless me according to fairness. 
He lives beyond that level. He works in a different dimension. And I now come to realize that God, you are so good to me that it is unfair how gracious you are to me. Lord, I don't deserve this. I, 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 I haven't earned this. And God says, no, you haven't. It's not fair. So take it. Oh, and here's a bit more. And when you're done with that, here's some more. God is so amazingly good. But with that goodness comes a responsibility. With greater intimacy become, comes a stricter judgment. We have to accept that. Because God calls us into difficult paths, to times of trial and hardship, to places of pain. Why? Because we need to go there to take the presence of God to bring the solution. That's what we're called to do. And it will seem to us, God, it is not fair that I am in this place. It is not fair that I'm in a pit. Yeah, we're going back to Joseph. It's not fair that I'm in a prison. No, it's not. But you've got to go that way to prove and to bring the presence of God into the palace. And there's no other way to get there than via the pit and the prison, which isn't fair. What happened to Joseph wasn't fair. So don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. Ask God for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. But for me, that was a big deal, and I had to get through it. Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, I believe that when we're on the pathway to true intimacy with him, God will speak to us in the ordinary things. He will speak to you in the routine and the mundane of life. God will use ordinary things to bring supernatural truths to you. He will bring you revelation at the hands of people you don't think you should receive revelation from. And some of the grace growers in your life, some of the most difficult people are the ones whom you learn the most through. And afterwards, you look back and say, I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I'm grateful for all that I've learned in and through that experience. So God uses the ordinary things, but Moses opened his eyes and his ears and recognized that there was something unusual. It wasn't unusual, we're told, for bushes to burn in a hot desert. But what was unusual is that the bush burned but wasn't consumed. Moses hadn't seen the angel. He saw the bush. He didn't see, at first glance, the supernatural. He just saw a bush burning that wasn't consumed and turned aside and went towards it. And as he approached what God was doing, in that place God spoke to him. But what was the first thing God said? He said, Moses, Moses, God knows your name. We've got two white stones on our kitchen mantelpiece, on our kitchen windowsill. If you don't know what that means, go back to, the, to ask later on. Our daughter said, what are they there for? Whether it's your old name or your new name. He knows your name. He's named you because he has destiny and purpose written all over you. I used to think God had plans. 
Now I realize, no, the word in Jeremiah 29, 11 is, I have purposes for you. And the plans can shift and alter and change and wax and wane a little bit. But God's purposes don't. And he builds and he builds. He knows your name. He knows your circumstance. He knows your need. He knows your trial. He knows your hardship. He knows your pain. He knows your joy. He knows your victories. He knows your defeat. He knows your name. And he uses it. He uses it. And he calls to you. Moses, Moses, but Moses said, here I am. There has to be a response from us. And he said, do not come near here. Hang on. So Moses has been called into intimacy and God has created this burning bush that isn't burning. And the first thing God does when he attracts him to it, he says, stop, don't come near. I encourage you, study the opposites in scripture. There's loads of them. Study the opposites and you'll find wonderful blessing in there. So Moses says, stop. Uh, sorry, God says, stop. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Rian tells me that when she and Rebecca were in Australia in January, that the sun was so hot that the sand burnt their feet and they had to run to get to cooler sand. I'm not jealous. It wasn't judgment on God, on them, that they were in a hot place when we weren't. But Moses, standing there in the presence of God, suddenly he's going to take his sandals off in a hot, stony, thorny desert because God says the place you're standing is holy because wherever God is, it becomes holy, set aside to him. And if you really mean business with God, if we really want intimacy, I tell you now, you have to humble yourself and God will help you. And when you're humble enough, God will make you realize that maybe you're not quite humble as he wants you to be. And there'll be a bit more. There has to be a breaking because you're fixed in a way that isn't right. Because we're in a corrupt world. And God wants to break you so that he can fix you better than you were before. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What comes before a fall? Pride. And therefore, we have to realize that it's not about you. It's not about your calling. It's not about your ministry. It's not about Junction 10. It's about him. End of story. Not one of us is irreplaceable, but God chooses to use us. Yes, he has purpose and destiny over you. And you might look at your life and think, God, I've had these prophetic words and I thought the pathway was going to be like this. And God said, yeah, that was a great idea. But this happened. But the purposes haven't changed. But you need to take your eyes off the promise. You need to put your eyes on the person. If we dare to call Jesus that. But there is a man in the glory so we can get away with it. We have to humble ourselves. We have to continually humble ourselves. And remember, the gifts and the talents that you have have been placed there by God himself. Yes, you have a responsibility to nurture those talents. You'll be judged according to them. In fact, God says, if you're not going to nurture that talent, I'll take it away. I'll give it to somebody else who will do something with it. Parable of the talents. Was that fair? Was it? It wasn't. One talent? Was it two talents? Five talents? Who, who got the one talent at the end? The guy with the five talents. Just thought I'd throw that in there. 
And so Moses had to humble himself. And when he did that, he heard the voice of God and realized that God was about something much bigger. Moses had spent 40 years learning to be somebody, born in the palace. Uh, tradition, not scripture, tradition says that he was a great general and won a great uh, victory against Ethiopia. And um, history says that there was a great victory celebration. And Moses, the general, was, was part of that and led all that. It's not in scripture, but I'll just throw it there. Moses was somebody at one time. And then spent 40 years. And when we see him, he's looking after sheep, which wasn't a very glamorous job for somebody else. Didn't even have his own. Yes, he knew what it was to be humbled and found himself that in that place, he realized that God, that Moses still had the talent of a general. He still had the background of royalty. But he had the calling of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it could only come from that desert place where he stood on a hot, thorny, stony sand in his bare feet, listening to the voice of God. I hope your feet hurt. I hope your feet hurt from time to time. Because if they don't, it means that there is a, a core of pride in us that God needs to break down. The Tower of Babel shows us that when we pool our strengths and our resources together, we can do amazing things. And Jesus himself said that, that if two agree on anything, or touching anything on earth, it will be done. Because the power of agreement is incredible and it's a spiritual truth that I don't think we fully grasp. I know I don't fully understand it. But the power of us working together with the gifting that God has given can be a, an amazing strength, but it can be an incredible danger too because we can become self-reliant. I've been there and I've done that. I've worked a lot and operated out of my gifting that I've nurtured and tended to. But oh God, no more. Don't let there be a stiffness of pride in me. And I pray, Lord, that my feet will hurt because I'm standing on hot, stony, thorny sand, listening to the voice of God so that you will flow through me and do amazing things. And I pray that that is your prayer too. And so Moses stood up and did what was called to him. And let's skip to um, um, Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel, Exodus 33. And... Um, there's just a couple of things I'd like to bring to you there. From verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of the meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of the meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would rise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the presence of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people of the, saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, eat at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have found favor in my sight. 
that you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about that while my glory is passing by, that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll make my hand, take my hand away from, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Another amazing opposite. If you really mean business with God, there will come a time that you're going to have to separate yourself from the crowd of the people. There will have to come a time where you will have to go out from where the people are, are to a tent of meeting. You cannot get intimate with God without spending time with Him. And can I suggest that that time with Him needs to be filled with worship, praise and worship. It needs to be filled with His Word. It needs to be filled with space where He can speak to you. It needs to be filled with time where you speak to him. Now that doesn't necessarily need to be concertined into one 10 minute, quarter of an hour, half hour quiet time, although they are good. And, and I, I encourage you wholeheartedly to do those things. But if we really are in a walk of intimacy with him, then when we're about our daily business, we suddenly see the burning bush and we hear the voice of God and we allow ourselves to be called to one side and we recognize that God's doing something in this place and in this moment. The sheep will be okay, but I'm here right now. But we have to come to a place where we will separate ourselves because broad is the road that leads to destruction and many there be that go on it, but narrow is the path that leads to life and few there are that go on it. And can I suggest that parable or that saying holds true to church as well? in the sense that many people can come to church and be jollied along with it. Will they get to heaven? I pray so. But I don't want to be one of the crowd. I want to be one that is known by him, that he uses my name regularly, and that we're in that place of real intimacy. And to do that, I have to set myself apart. I have to set myself apart from other people's expectations because it's about what he says. I have to set myself apart from other people's wants and convenience. I mean, sometimes all those things will flow together and that's great. 
And if it does, that's wonderful, but it has to be his saying and what he does and what he says. But what I will tell you is this, is that when Moses went out to the tent of meeting, a couple of things happened. First of all, yes, God met with Moses. Moses met with God, but other people saw the benefit and could see what was happening. And when you spend time with God, when you cultivate that realistic connection with him, other people will be blessed, will benefit and will notice. You cannot stay the same. The atmosphere in our home is radically different now to what it was two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, because Rian and I are getting closer and closer to the Lord. And Rian is finally starting to realise what an amazing hunk I really am. Well, maybe not that bit, but, <laughs> but it's true. The nearer we get to God, it has an impact on our friends and our family because we're changing and how we handle things changes. The battles that we face, we maybe tackle slightly differently. We pick our battles differently because God is doing amazing things. And when Moses went to that place of meeting, outside and away from the people, People noted. It said there, didn't it? Um, Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, eat at the entrance of his tent. I know that Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Paul said, be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. Paul was saying, look, if you follow the pattern that I live, that will lead you to him, and then I'll just quietly step out the way, and you'll be connected to him yourself. Sheep learn to hear the shepherd's voice because lambs follow the mum. The shepherd calls, the mum responds, the lambs follow the mum. Until eventually the lambs learn to recognise the shepherd's voice for themselves. And they go because they've heard. And when they've heard, then... You know, they get involved with sheepy type things that sheep do. But the point is this, is that if we exalt Jesus in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our homes, in our places of work, if we exalt Jesus, he will draw people to him through you. He will do it. And you will have opportunity to speak. You will have opportunity to pray. You will have opportunity to reach out. And uh, God is just amazing in what he does. So in Moses' journey, he, he was at a point where he'd been in the desert and saw the bush. He'd heard the voice of God. He'd seen all the plagues. He'd known amazing miracles. He'd been obedient in striking the rock and water coming out. He'd led the people across the Red Sea. He'd been disobedient in striking the rock a second time instead of speaking to it. Is that fair? I don't know. I struggle with that one. But what I do know is that God loved Moses. God cherished Moses. God spent time with Moses until eventually, no, Moses couldn't enter into the promised land at that point. But God loved Moses so much that his death was very precious to God 
and he sorted it all out. And then we read of Moses in the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, that just blows my mind. And I think, I don't get it. I don't fully understand it, God. But I thank you because I know that you love Moses. And so Moses experienced God in many ways. And yet we read here, if your presence don't, doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. So Moses would spend time in the tent of meeting. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And yet it says later on, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But you know, Moses was prepared to pay the price. Moses was prepared to die in order to see the face of his God. I don't fully understand that. I guess in the temple of meeting, whether it was a pre-incarnate Jesus that would speak, or whether it was just that he would speak with Moses like being face to face, I don't know. All I know is that God was there, Moses was there, it was great, but Moses wanted more. But it wasn't the miracle that he wanted. It wasn't the reputation. He just wanted more of God. He wanted more of God. And in that place, God showed him himself, but protected Moses. You know, here's a Bill Johnson thing. Is all of this Bible in God? Is all of this in God? It's not a trick question. Say yes, Brian. This is God breathed. It's God inspired. It's God anointed. It's an amazing book because when we think we understand it, we dig a bit deeper and God brings something else out of these verses we've known for years. It's, it's an incredible and amazing book. But can I tell you, all of God is not in this. God is bigger than this book. Even than this book of life that is so precious and wonderful. And Moses experienced God in amazing and in incredible ways. And yet, he wanted more. I'm going to bring it to a conclusion with a thought. Because we've got to make it real. There's no point talking theory. I mean, um, one time I was preaching in America and uh, I was staying with a farmer. Because God is good. <laughs> and uh, I, I wasn't speaking until the evening. And it was hay time. And I, I said to the farmer, I says, uh, is there anything I can do to help? He said, yeah. He said, you can go and mow that field of hay. So I, I went to mow this field of hay. It's great. With this real old John Deere tractor. They used to call it the putt-putt. Because, you know, it had that wheel in the middle. You know, one of them ones. And uh, it really was old. No cab. And uh, with a really old mower uh, in a quite a heap, uh, heap steep hilly field. And, uh, it, you know, I've mowed acres and acres of ground in, in the UK. Uh, but here, as the mower went along, all you could see was crickets and grasshoppers and things flying everywhere. It was, it was ever so weird. But I say that to say this. In the middle of this field was a tree. And by the tree was a bench. I said, what's that there for? He said, that's, this is my neighbor's field. And that's his place of prayer. Now, he had somewhere where he could go and pray. And 
and I looked around at the view. I thought, yeah, I, can, I get that. I get that. So you can go make yourself a place of prayer. You can go and have your retreats, and they're great. They're good. I would really encourage you to do that. Whatever you need to do to, to, to separate some extra time for him, do it. Do it. Cultivate that time with him. But utilize the time you have. Utilize your traveling time. Utilize the time when you're going to work. <coughs> we have technology. Be careful what you listen to, but when you listen to the right thing, it can really build you up. Jesus fed the 5,000. John the Baptist had been beheaded. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He gathered the disciples together and he sent them off ready for the next mission while Jesus dismissed the crowd and he went up in the mountain to pray. And Jesus sent the disciples into a storm. And it was rough. And it was cold. And it was probably scary. And if you read in Mark's version, it says, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and it, he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. He intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. Now, if you flip to Matthew's account of this, when the 5,000 were fed, he said, Looking for it? Sorry? Yeah, I've got Matthew 15. Sarah finishing movement, healing the crowds, 4,000 fed. Pharisees test Jesus. Ah, sorry, it's Matthew 14. That's why it's on 15. <laughs> Jesus walks on the water. And it says in this one, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat um, and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Don't be surprised if God sends you into stormy waters. It's because the waters are stormy that you need to be there. Because you can't bring his peace and his solution unless sometimes you are in those stormy waters. So don't start thinking, oh no, what have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me? Just say, okay, God, what's your plan and your purpose in this? Because what I do know is that, that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will be with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. You said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. I will stick closer to you than a brother. I am living and abiding within you. And so when we face these storms of life, we needn't be afraid, but we can take courage knowing that he's with us, knowing that there is purpose in this pain. There is purpose in the pain that you face. 
But Jesus didn't make it easy. Because if you really want intimacy with him, you and I, we're going to have to step out of the boat. But it wasn't a placid mill pond. It wasn't calm. You heard the story of three, three ministers, a Pentecostal, a Baptist, and an Anglican. And they were in a boat. And they were going fishing. And they realized that they'd forgotten the bait. So the Anglican said, oh, I'll just nip out and get it. He hopped out the boat, walked over on the water, got the bait, came back in the boat. And they were about to leave. And the Baptist said, oh, no, I, we, forgot, we, forgot the, we forgot the food. So he hopped out the boat and, walked and brought it back. And the Pentecostal man thought, if, an Ang- if a Baptist and whatever the other one was, I've forgotten, can do that. Anglican can do that. I can do that. So he hopped out the boat and sank. And the Baptist said to the Anglican, do you think we ought to tell him where the stepping stones are? <laughs> it's not like that when he calls us to step out of the boat. When Peter got out the boat, the wind was fierce. The waves were steep. It was dark. It was cold. It was scary. And there was Jesus looking a little bit like a ghost. I love it where it says, Peter says, Jesus, if it is you, tell me, command me to come to you on the water. All Jesus said was come. He, he didn't come out, you know, he just said one word, come. And Peter was, you know, and, and, and then, you know, logic suddenly kicked in. And then Peter cried out. But what did Peter do? He cried out looking to Jesus and Jesus stretched out his hand and saved him. Now, Peter might have sank, but Peter was the only one that got out of the boat. And he's calling you and me to step out of the boat. And if we step out of the boat and sink, he will be there to help us. Because when Peter got back into the boat, who came with him? Jesus. And so Peter brought Jesus back into the boat in that situation because he'd stepped out. And when he got back in, only then was it calm. Peter had to get out of his circumstance into something more dangerous to get a hold of the presence of God and bring the presence of God back into his circumstance. Did you get that? He left his circumstance to become more dangerous to get the presence of God, that the presence of God would then come back into his circumstance and change everything. God has far more for you, far more for me. Our best years are yet to come. For you as individuals. Yeah, we had Jeremy Corbyn in in Living Waters. Brilliant. But you have the King of Kings every day. And I'm not decrying that. I believe that Junction 10 has the potential for the best years in front of it. That's God's purpose. It's his plan. It's his desire. So, Father, we just want to pray, Lord, that you would just take hold of the thoughts that are right for us and let them find place. And everything that is not of you, then, Lord, just, just let, it, let, it, let it fade away. Because, Lord, it is all about you. Lord, you are the author And you are the finisher of our faith. And Lord, we're somewhere in between. And and Lord, we, we, we know that there will be storms and trials. There will be challenges, hardships and difficulties. 
But in all of those times and in all of those places, Lord, we experience your goodness because you say you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Your rod and your staff are there to comfort us. We can lean and depend on you. And Lord, we know we have authority. We have the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you've put people in our lives for our sake and benefit. Lord, you don't call us to do this alone. And I pray both that we will all have people that will minister to us, but Lord, that we'll be people that will bring encouragement and succor and nurture to others. So Lord, lead us outside of the camp, away from the people, into the place of real intimacy with you. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, do it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.